1: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 7 and 8.
0: Okay, we are in Ecclesiastes, session 5, which is going to review chapters 7 and 8 of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to talk a little bit about wisdom and also wickedness. As you know, it's obviously, I put this up front just to remind us, it's Hebrew, we're subject to a translation, and the theme of the book, of course, is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's both the opening and the closing thoughts, but there's much between. The word Kohaleth is the Hebrew, which really means the assembler, the one that gathers an assembly, or the preacher, if you will. And the Greek translation of that is Ecclesia, from the, Latin, the Latinization of that, we get Ecclesiastes, the name of, that we associate with the book. And uh, it's Solomon, let's keep in mind, it's Solomon's sermon on the natural man in his quest for the chief good under the sun. So there's two constraints you want to keep in mind. One is this is Solomon's wisdom from man's point of view. And secondly, his perception is under the sun, on the earth. There are two dimensions that occasionally gleam, you know, glimmer through. One is that Solomon is sensitive to the fact that the real issues are after death but he really confines his remarks as life from between birth and death he really doesn't deal in the afterlife at all it's under the sun in other words and much of what he says is just his wisdom and uh, but we make a mistake if we assume that's all there is it's a very organized treatise of component parts but it concludes that all is vanity that's under the sun and man's own resources it is not pessimistic as most commentators seem to conclude. It's actually bravely honest and uh, does look beyond life's ironies to the fact that God is really in control and there will be restitutions finally. Let's be sensitive to that even though it's uh, more subordinate. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every work into judgment, every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. This is the summary in chapter 12 near the end. Most of the book is really supporting that theme. So we're going to be in chapter 7. You know, it's interesting, Thomas Gray said, where ignorance is bliss, it is folly to be wise. Now he was saying that of young men watching them on a playing field, figuring that while they're young, they're innocent, uh, they can enjoy life. When they get wisdom, they'll understand life's... He's really talking about the fact that they're um, at their stage in life to be happy is part of their happiness is that they don't really know it's coming. That's really what they thought, but it's often quoted. Solomon had sort of a similar conclusion to that in the first chapter, you may recall. Verse 18 of chapter 1 said, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. But he's now taking a second look at that. That was his first sort of horseback look. And he's now going to discuss the role of wisdom in life. The word wisdom is going to occur... 14 times in these two chapters. I think that's interesting. It's a multiple of seven and complete. He does conclude that although wisdom uh, can't explain all of life's mysteries, he does make at least, uh, wisdom does make three positive contributions to our life. So he's not disparaging, and he's going to talk about its, its limitations. Wisdom, first, of his three arguments, first, it can make life better. Wisdom can make life better. That, may, that seems in contradiction to what he originally said opening up, but... And by the way, the word better is a very key word. It's 11 times in this chapter. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now you say, wow, what's he talking about here? That's a weird verse. Most of us would rather go to a birthday party than a funeral, wouldn't we? And yet, uh, he's really uh, he would contest that, because he would say that uh, sorrow can do more good for the heart Uh, than laughter can. That's his argument, in effect. The word heart is going to be four times in these four verses. He was not a morose man, by the way. Let's keep that in mind. He's the guy that wrote the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 15 and 17. And he also wrote the Song of Solomon. So don't assume that he's just a gloomy guy. And he points out in his other writings that laughter can be like medicine. Uh, and uh, But sorrow is like a nourishing food that strengthens the inner person. The best way to summarize I think is he does you know he says that there is a time to laugh remember in chapter 3 we talked about that but he's what he's really arguing about is a balanced life and he's pointing out that sorrow can do more for our growth than laughter can so it seems like a bizarre statement at first you don't want to generalize the statement from the first part of this verse a good name is better than precious ointment and uh, in other words a good reputation is sort of like fragrance and by the way there's a play on words in this uh, the uh, the word name is Shem in the Hebrew, and the word for ointment, precious ointment, is Shemim. He will use the same image in chapter 10, and he used the same image in Solomon, in the opening of the book of the uh, Song of Solomon. Now, he's not contrasting birth and death. He's contrasting the day of birth and the day of death. And he's suggesting those are two, those are boundary days in our life. They're significant days because the day we're born is when we're given our name. And the day that we die is when our name has been earned, whatever it is. It takes its complexion uh, as to how we've lived the life between those two events. If a person dies with a uh, a good name, his reputation is sealed then, in effect, at death, and the family doesn't have to worry. So, in that sense, the, the day of death is resolved. Uh, what person, you know, the person's reputation has been settled. Now, as Solomon is assuming there's no hidden scandals, in effect, in in his thing. There's an old expression that uh, every person has three names. One his father and mother gave him. The others, the other one, which people call him, and finally, the one he acquires for himself. That is when he dies, how people remember him. Proverbs 10 and Proverbs 22 carry the idea that the memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. Our reputation endure Remember Mary of Bethany. She uh, anointed the Lord with uh, expensive ointment. Jesus said that her name would be honored throughout the world. And of course, it is. We all recall that. On the other hand, there's a guy by the name of Judas who sold the Lord into the hands of his enemies. When he was born, he was given a good name. The name Judah means praise. It's the name of the tribe, the royal tribe. But by the time he died, his name has become an idiom of infamy and shame. So, so Solomon's context here is one. See, The context of the verse comes from the first part. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of one's birth. In other words, you really earn your reputation, not when you're born, but when you die. That's really what, in effect, he's saying. But he goes on, he says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of countenance the heart is made better. So Solomon's really focusing on personal growth and maturity, really, in effect here. And he's advising, all the way through this, to look death in the eye and to learn from it. He doesn't say to be preoccupied with death, but not to avoid confrontations uh, with the reality of death and take it as seriously as we should. Remember Psalm uh, uh, 90.12. Lord, teach us to, remember, to number our days so that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. And that's somewhat the flavor what uh, what he's uh, doing here. He's really asking for balance. And by the way, the word for laughter here in verse 3 Can mean the laughter of derision or scorn, if you will. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He's really he's really suggesting that there's growth, if you will, in understanding the the eternal aspects. It's interesting that that when people joke about death, it's usually evidence that they're afraid of it and haven't prepared for it. It's a way of running away. But now uh, from verse 5 on, he's going to talk about how rebuke, in the same flavor, you can say rebuke is better than praise. And uh, he goes on, It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. It's interesting, the leaders that I've known, the really good ones, tend to dismiss or take take with a grain of salt flattery or positive statements. But they listen very carefully to criticisms, or, or they listen very carefully to their detractors more than their supporters, because in a sense, they're more honest. For the cracking of thorns is under a pot, and so is the laughter of a fool, and this also is vanity. Now, all the way through here, we're going to try to hit the highlights of what the thoughts that uh, Solomon has, but I also want to highlight something. We're dealing with the translation, and often the expressions that are chosen are a function of the Hebrew, not the English. To give you an example... There are three words here, the song of fools, the crackling of thorns under a pot. There's a play on words here, what we call homophones, words that sound alike. See, the word song is sheer in the Hebrew, the pot is seer, and the thorns are serim. And so in the Hebrew, these are homophones, they are words that sound alike. So there's a play on words going on here that doesn't dismiss the, 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 the thought that he's trying to talk. He's, he's saying the praise of fools is sort of like the crackling of thorns under a campfire, which is, uh, you know, you hear a lot of noise, but you don't get much uh, lasting good out of it. Uh, what, he, what he's really saying, though, I think, in all of this, is that uh, a wise person's rebuke will accomplish more in our lives than the flattery of fools. And he learned this from his father, because you can go through the Psalms, Psalm 141 for an example. And also, he emphasized it all through the book of Proverbs, and they'll, they'll be listed in your, in your notes. At this point, he goes into, he starts talking about the long haul is better than a shortcut. words, he's, he's really talking, taking a long view here. He says, surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for angry resteth in the bosom of fools. Part of what he's suggesting here, beware of the shortcuts, the easy way. Because they are often very expensive detours that can be actually painful and difficult. You've always heard people say, I don't have time to be in a hurry. Or do it right the first time kind of thing. It's the same flavor. In verse 7, he's really saying, that he has in mind here that bribery appears to be a quick way to get things done. You know, gift destroyeth the heart, and it only turns a wise man into a fool. In fact, it encourages corruption in the human heart. That's really what he's—the you know, key thought in verse seven. He's suggesting it's better to wait patiently uh, for God's plan rather than get angry and demand your own way. And this is the same. This echoes thoughts that are in the Proverbs fourteen and, and sixteen and elsewhere. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. Beginning of sin ends to a terrible end—death. But if God's at the beginning of what we do, He will see to it that we reach the end successfully. Is is the is the flavor here? Good beginnings usually mean good endings, and we could go through a lot of other examples uh, all through the uh, the uh, scripture. You know, we think of Joseph who began uh, as a slave but ended up as a sovereign, and uh, how Jesus saved the best wine to last in in John two, and we could go on. Now, a Christian believer, of course, can claim Romans eight twenty eight all the way. Through this, because he knows that God is at work and will accomplish his purposes. Not to be in a rush. The question that occurred to me to sort of throw out is how many of you ask for directions rather than bluff your way through? You know, he Not thou, what is the cause of the former days that were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. You know, this is the old, good, the good old days, which is really a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination, okay, according to some. Remember when the foundation was laid for the second temple, the old men wept for the old days. And, uh, but the young men sang because the work had begun in Ezra 3. Now some people say, yesterday is the past, cannot be changed, tomorrow is not yet come, so make the most of the day. How did the, the Roman poet Horace say? Carpe diem, seize the day, the now. Yesterday is a memory. Tomorrow is a speculation. The reality is today. It's palpable, tangible. It's an opportunity for which we'll be accountable. So, uh, starting from verse 11 on, Psalm is going to suggest that wisdom, his second argument, wisdom will also help us see life more clearly. And he's going to argue that maturity requires balance. That's all the way through this thing. And wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. Now, the word defense, by the way, in the Hebrew, same word as the word shadow. So uh, it gives this thing a little more uh, uh, softer complexion. Wisdom is better than a generous inheritance, he's suggesting. Money loses its value, but wisdom can't be stolen, keeps its value, can't be lost, unless we become fools and abandon it completely. How they always say, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day you teach them to fish and you fed them for life. The so concept of wisdom is, is, is another way of expressing it. It's been suggested that he, the person that has wealth but lacks wisdom will only waste his fortune. But the person that has wisdom will know how to get and use his wealth. And uh, another echo that, you've often heard the expression uh, second generation money. How the sons of rich people tend to go through it pretty quickly or end up in trouble. Verse 13, Consider the work of God for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked. In other words, part of it to realize our limitations. God has His way. Uh, This is probably reflected, I think we mentioned this before, in what some people call the serenity prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr back in 1934. It's very famous. You've heard it quoted often. Oh, God, give us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, (laughs) and the wisdom to know the difference. And uh, that's, I think, part of the thought here that in verse 13. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider, God has also set one over against the other, to the end that man should find nothing after him. Part of the thought here is wisdom gives us perspective so we won't get discouraged when we get in difficulty. Or arrogant when things go well. I know that was true in my life. Things were going so well, I got very arrogant, overextended, went down in flames. I signed an $8 billion joint venture with the Soviet Union, and I got what I deserved. I went down in flames to wipe everything I had. Interestingly enough, the lessons I learned on the downside are vastly more valuable than the joys and things I had on the upside. You know, there was a time we had a lot of money, and that was fine. It was fun. But um, not a lot of learning went on. We just got arrogant, aggressive, overconfident. But that dark value went through, changed our lives constructively, I think through eternity for a lot of reasons. And uh, so I think it exemplifies this. And Job reminded his wife of all of this when he, she told she told him to curse God and die during their dark days. He says, "What shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall not receive evil?" In chapter two of Job. And uh, you know earlier he said, "The Lord taketh gives, the Lord taketh away." Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so the Lord balances the blessings in our hands <laughs> with the burdens on our backs. That keeps us steady, and as we yield to Him. He can even turn the burdens into blessings. He certainly has in our life. It was interesting, the whole book of Job, Job's friends were completely wrong. They had good arguments, but they were invalid. They tried to use an old road map to guide him on a new journey. And the map just didn't fit. So you can dig into that or review your notes on Job if you like. See, no matter how much we experience, no matter how many books we read, no matter how many courses we take, we still just walk by faith. But let's go on. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There's a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. That's disturbing. That's one of the basic dilemmas in life, is that uh, why do the righteous suffer and why do the wicked prosper? The good die young and the wicked seem to keep going. It's interesting that uh, God did promise Israel to bless Israel in the land if they obeyed His laws, but He He hasn't given those promises today under the New Covenant. Francis Bacon pointed this out. Prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament. Adversity is the blessing of the New. And that sounds strange, but you can carry that through. Take take a look at it. And uh, it's interesting, the Lord's opening words in the Sermon on the Mount were not, you know, blessed are the rich in substance. No, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so on. Another aspect of this is the wicked appear to prosper only if you take the short view of things. It's been said some time ago, and I think it's very provocative, you can prove anything if your scope is narrow enough. If you take the long view, that punctures this issue of the wicked prospering. And that was the lesson that Asaph recorded in Psalm 73, something that Paul reinforces in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4. Matthew 6, they have their reward, that's all they'll ever get kind of thing. And uh, they may gain the whole world, but they lose their own souls. You all know those verses. We don't have to beat that to death. Let's go on to verse 16. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not over much wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before your time? Uh, Verses 16, 17, 18 have been misunderstood by a lot that say that Solomon was simply teaching moderation in everyday life. Don't be too righteous, don't be too great a sinner. Play it safe. That's not what he's saying at all. See, in the Hebrew text... The verbs, especially in verse 16, carry the idea of reflexive action. See, what he's really saying, don't be, don't claim to be righteous and don't claim to be wise. In other words, what he's warning them against is self-righteousness and pride that comes when we think we've arrived spiritually and as if we know it all. And he will make clear in verse 20 forthcoming that there are no righteous people. So he can't be referring to true righteousness. He's really talking about self-righteousness or claimed righteousness. And he's condemning self-righteousness of the hypocrite, the false wisdom of the proud. And he warned that these sins lead to destruction and death. And verse 18, it is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, and from this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Notice here, this is one of these places where you realize it's... Solomon, contrary to the way he starts this thing isn 't limiting himself to this life he's he 's recognizing it gets its real perspective out from under the sun and beyond the point of death and This is one of the places that you realize his scope is larger than it would seem on the on the face of things. So the fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. Solomon tells us in proverbs nine verse ten, very key verse verse nineteen wisdom strengthened the wise more than ten men which are in the city. <laughs> And uh, the wise person, of course, doesn't fear anybody, because if he fears the Lord, he has no reason to fear anything else. And that's also hammered in Psalm 112. He walks with the Lord, and thus he has the adequacy to meet anything that comes. All the changes, all the challenges of life, including war, including major catastrophes. Verse 20, For there is not a just man on the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Here's Solomon summarizing... Romans three: There is none righteous that doeth good and sinneth not. Now, Romans six, by the way, just to emphasize this, tells us that sin need not reign in our lives if we're in Christ. That doesn't mean we're sinless, but sin does not need to have control over your life if you're in Christ. Romans six: It ain't gonna reign no more. See, if we walk in the fear of God and we follow His wisdom, we'll be able to detect and defeat the wicked one, when he comes to tempt us. That's really the thought that's even buried in here. Wisdom, the way Solomon's taking will guide us in our walk. Verse 21, Also take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. Strange way of expressing it, perhaps. For oftentimes, he says, also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise has cursed others. Another problem we all have that sort of echoes from all this is uh, this idea of uh, being concerned about what people say about us. So your servant curses really carries that, that thought. And uh, one of the things, if I can just uh, de- depart here for a minute, one of the things that's a hot button with me, and so I'll use this as an excuse to depart from the, the, the main outline, is to talk about this thing about talking about others. And a question I often ask a group, what is the most painful sin? We can all list sins, but what sin... Causes, has probably caused more pain in the history of man than any of the other sins. And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer to that question is probably gossip. Gossip has probably caused more hidden pain, and of course it's a violation of thou shalt not bear false witness, but there are more subtle forms of gossip uh, and that, that account for more personal pain and suffering than we probably have any conception of. It's a form of betrayal, and uh, it's probably hurtful beyond our reckoning. Behind the flurry of our daily routines, the venom does its silent work, undermining confidences, betraying relationships, spreading unseen injustices, and invisibly promoting misunderstandings and resentment and distrust. And the scripture has a lot to say about it. I won't go through it all. My little article on this will be uh, appended to the notes that accompany the tape. You can go through a little study there. And this is sensitive to me because we went through... My wife and I went through a deep, dark valley about 10 years ago. Bankruptcy, earthquakes, relocating from our family roots. and But the most pain of that whole experience wasn't the loss of the money or the bankruptcy and all that. The trauma of those difficult years really came from the libel and the slander that was promoted or at least tolerated by, quote, many of our Christian, close quote, friends. Um, And I'm sure many of you probably have similar experiences that uh, people without checking, accepting negative or derogatory innuendos uh, whispered behind people's backs. I have to add, in, in contrast to that, we received indescribable encouragement uh, from a number of uh, new sources and new friends and, and uh, notable personalities that, you know, on the Internet and whatever uh, on these various uh, controversies that uh, rebutted the aspersions against us without even needing to check. That was incredible. I have to tell you one anecdote that always echoes in my mind because it echoes many of us. And there was a day when I was on Walter Martin's board, and uh, Walter Martin was a beloved friend. But I remember before one of the board meetings in the, in the sort of the break, he came up to me and said, Do you know what Chuck Smith said last Sunday? Because he used to check on Sunday night services over at Calvary. And I stopped him at the comma, and I said... Uh, Gee, Walter, what was Chuck's reaction when you shared that with him? And uh, he sort of stopped and I said, I mean, I know you're too scriptural to be sharing that with me without having checked with, you know, reviewed it with him first. What was his re Well, I knew. Yeah, <laughs> He stopped. He got that impish grin on his face. And, uh, you know, I knew I had him. I knew I had him. So I, and that's rare for Walter because Walter really was a fabulous guy. But I caught him, so I just turned the knife in. And, of course, several of the board was sitting there chuckling, and Walter just backed off and looked at me and says, I'm gonna have trouble with you, aren't I? <laughs> but, uh, he had a twinkle. He, he, he was, he was a great guy. And of course, that, that's so rare that I, I, I love that anecdote. But, um, it, uh, was interesting because I never let him go on to tell me what he was anxious to share. This faux pas, apparently, that Chuck may have said that Sunday night. So those are precious years. And, uh, it was unusual to catch Walter in that kind of a misstep. And he, uh, uh, we miss him. He died back in 89. Fabulous guy close friend.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device.